we are starting the show by talking about the fact that the B.C. legislature is back and a little bit of history was made this morning. I, Eleanor Sturko. I, Eleanor Sturko. Do swear that I will be faithful. Do swear that I will be faithful. And bear true allegiance. And bear true allegiance. To His Majesty King Charles III. To His Majesty King Charles III. All right, we haven't heard that before. Joining us uh, to talk more about this and what we can expect in this legislative sitting is Richard Zussman, legislative reporter for Global BC. Richard, great to join. Uh, great to uh, have you right off the top of the show today. Gil, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I wanted to start with that because it, it will take a little getting used to, I think, hearing uh, the <laughs> pledge and hearing to the king. Yeah, we know that a lot of MLAs and ministers have been re-sworn under King Charles, but our understanding is that Eleanor Sturco is the first elected official in the Commonwealth to actually be sworn in for the first time under King Charles. So yeah, it will take some time. You know, we're getting used to the changes from Queen's Council to King's Council and all of these uh, traditions that have been in place for a long time. So yeah, Eleanor Sturco is... Uh, the first, and it's going to be really interesting to have her in the Liberal caucus, you know, well-known in Metro Vancouver, uh, her experience working for the RCMP. These are the type of candidates the Liberals need to recruit to start getting back that relevancy in Metro Vancouver, re-engaging themselves into the conversation. So it's going to be interesting to have her here in the, in the chamber. All right. So this gets the seven-week fall sitting underway. What are you focusing on or what do you think British Columbians will see uh, come out of this setting? Health Minister Adrian Dix is walking right by me now, so let's start with health. So clearly that's going to be one of the big, big issues. He's telling me no, but I don't believe him. Health is clearly going to be the big topic of discussion in session here. We've seen a number of elements this government's put forward around trying to address some of those concerns around doctor shortages, around wait times. But there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. We're going to do a story on the news hour today about the frustration from nurses that, you know, they are largely ignored in that human resources plan. We saw last week that they are chronically understaffed. Nurses are largely seen as the lifeblood of our healthcare system, and they need more support. So there's going to be a lot of issues around healthcare, legislation around healthcare. So that's going to be a big, big topic. And then the general idea of affordability and inflation will continue to dominate the conversation. Gas prices continue to break records. So how government responds to that will be key. And then the overlying part of all this is the fact we're going to start the session with one premier. We may end it with a different premier or we may not. <laughs> so that's the big thing that we don't know is John Horgan's the premier now. David Eby could be the premier at some point in October if the NDP boots Anjali Ampadurai out of leadership race. But if she stays in it, one of the big tones through the session is going to be, you know, that leadership race. What's David Eby promising out there that he may implement? And how does that differ potentially from what the government's doing here in Victoria? Yeah, it would be interesting to to take a look at that. And as you know, we've been talking a lot about the housing plan that David Eby released, a very ambitious plan. But what is it going to look like uh, depending on, like you say, what happens with this race? Yeah, and so as we start having wider conversations about David Eby's health care plan or David Eby's transit plan, and, and, and as David Eby puts these ideas on the table, we know he differs from the way the current government's trying to execute around 
uh, involuntary confinement. You know, those sort of conversations are going to creep into the discussion we hear in question period, which again kicks off this afternoon for this full session around two o'clock. You know, it's going to start dominating the questions reporters are asking. So all of that is going to be really crucial to watch here as the leadership race. Everybody here, the establishment here, Jill, the NDP establishment wants the party to step in and boot on Julia Apadurai and have David Eby as the premier in place by the end of October, early November. That's what the establishment wants. They want a smooth transition, but it's unclear whether that's going to be what happens. She is now registered. She signed up members. Obviously, we know she's under investigation around some of those signups. But they, the party should expect to run this long leadership contest right up until uh, they announce a winner on December 3rd. But if we were up to the people here, that those in the establishment, they would like this to be done and see a new premier uh, by the end of this month. Hmm, interesting. And, and not as though you just get to make that decision because you don't like somebody <laughs> or you don't want them to be the leader. But a lot happening there, like you said, with the investigation as well. Yeah, and I think that's part of the issue here is nobody wants to be perceived as usurping the democratic process. But if, in fact, someone had breached multiple rules to gain an advantage in a leadership race, should we be running that race uh, with those sort of advantages in place? That's the discussion that's being had right now by Elections BC, by the BC NDP to determine that. Uh, The assumption still is that David Eby is going to win this leadership, but Andrea Perdurai has proven to be popular. She has signed up a lot of members, and uh, we may have to see that test for David Eby to see if he can galvanize the existing members and ensure that his members he signed up get out there and vote. It's it's a complex issue for the party um, because with such a strong frontrunner and only one of them, it becomes very complex, and the perceptions would be really bad if they're seen booting the one person perceived as having a chance to the CDB. It would just be seen as the party handing him the reins of, of the most important job in this province. Right. All right. We'll continue watching that one for sure. Uh, Richard, just a, a quick mention as well. This is a report we often talk about. Uh, you want to get the bad news out there. You do it on a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. This actually came oh, out on Friday a Saturday morning, morning Saturday at 10 a.m. <laughs> uh, what do we know about this is the full expert investigation into repeat offenders and crime in B.C.? So we're going to hear from Minister Farnworth about this in about 15 minutes time. And, and I think part of it is the fact that we saw the heart of this report already with those recommendations. We had a media availability around it. And the report just supplements a lot of that work. Yes, there are important things in that document that should be analyzed by reporters and by um, groups out there concerned about this issue. Um, you know, should you be releasing things on a Saturday morning? No. But I don't think there's anything tucked away in there the public should be worried government is trying to hide. But we'll we'll hear from Minister Farnworth about that timing about 15 minutes from now because clearly there are some questions around accountability uh, when you, you know, are releasing reports like that at a time where most of those covering the legislature and covering these public safety issues you know, or at soccer practice with their kids. And and by the way, my son's team won, so just in case you were wondering. (laughs) That was my next question. How did you know? (laughs) All right, Richard, thank you so much. Look forward to your report tonight and hearing what Mike Farnworth has to say about that as well. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Jill. My pleasure as always. That is Richard Zussman, a global news reporter. He is based in Victoria. And as Richard mentioned, we will get more reaction to the full report. It's called Making Our Communities Safer. And it was released Saturday morning. So 
don't fear if you've not had time to look at it. It is 170 pages long, so you are not alone if you've not read the report. But uh, some of the highlights are, as Richard mentioned, this is in addition to those 28 recommendations that we saw back on September 21st. Well, as you likely saw and heard, there were more protests and demonstrations in cities around the world this past weekend, all protesting the treatment of a woman in Iran and women in general in Iran. In his first public comments on the unrest, we also heard from Iran's supreme leader. He came out blaming the United States as well as Israel for the protests and saying that his security forces will be ready for more challenges to his rule. The United States officials there saying they are appalled by the violence in Iran in response to the protests there. We've also heard those sentiments echoed from the UK as well as Canada. This all started when 22-year-old Masa Amini She fell into a coma just hours after being detained by the so-called morality police. This happened on September 13th in Tehran. She was beaten for allegedly breaking the strict law there requiring women to cover their hair with a hijab or a headscarf. She passed away three days later, and we've seen those protests and demonstrations ever since. Well, we wanted to get a better idea on what was happening locally when it comes to the protests. And Mahan Zeri joins me now, a local activist who has been taking part in those demonstrations. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I know you've been very active in taking part in these protests and these rallies. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen when going and taking part in these events? Um, I think for, I, I, I want to say for the first time for a lot of us Iranians, it really feels like the world is listening to us. This movement is not something new. It's not from uh, this year. It's not a 2020, um, sorry, 2022 movement. It's something that's been going on. Um, So it feels really nice to see just the world coming together, everyone watching us. So many, of course, so many Iranians. We have a lot of uh, Iranians in the community, but just people outside of our community coming, raising awareness and um, standing in solidarity with us. And what do you think has changed them? Because you're right, this isn't, unfortunately, this isn't something that, that is new. This is something that has happened before. And but, but people have really rallied behind or come together because of the death of Masa Amini. What do you think was the changing point? Or what are you hearing from people as to how this was what is bringing people out and, and finally making it so people are saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore? Mm-hmm. I think there's a few factors that are involved. Um, uh, I think for the people there, because I think they have nothing to lose anymore. So there's poverty, there's no human rights, there's no accountability, uh, the, uh, the government, and they've just got to the point that they've had it. They're like, we, we're not going to let any more of our kids die in vain and stay quiet. But I think with us on this side, people who live outside of Iran, we're also feeling a huge sense of guilt because just three years ago, 1,500 Iranians were murdered by the regime, by the terrorist regime. And we, we didn't do nearly enough. So I think a lot of us are this time really feeling it. And we, we're not going to give up and we're going to have their backs however way we can. And I think when I talk to people in Iran and I have family who's out in the streets protesting, you know, most of us do. And when I ask them what they need from us, all they're saying is to just keep our voices alive. So I think we're, we have to do that for him, for them. There's no other choice. 
And when you see that as well and talk to people, the the difference too, even well, it's so great to see people going into the streets of Canadian cities as we've been seeing now the yeah. past couple of weekends. Unfortunately, I mean, we're seeing violence in some other cities, people in Iran who are really putting themselves in dangerous way doing this. What can you say kind of about the difference between going to a protest in Canada as opposed to say some of the more dangerous parts of the world? Um, it's completely different. We go to the protests, we come home, we are, we're safe. Uh, we have freedom of speech. Um, in Iran, um, they, they, like I said, they have nothing and freedom of speech. It's not just about hijab. This movement kind of started, uh, as I think hijab was the way that it got out, but it is so much more than that. There are people who are in full hijab, but the minute they open their mouths about anything against the government, they disappear. So I think the difference is that when we go to a protest uh, here, we get to come back home, we're safe, we have freedom of speech, we jump on social media, and we can talk about it. And it's completely different. They're they're literally, every time they go out into the streets, they're fighting for their lives, and they're putting their lives on the line. And people uh, who are in full hijab even, this is not just about hijab. I know this movement started um, and it gained momentum as uh, a movement against hijab, but there's so much more than that. They don't have freedom of speech. There's people who are in full hijab. They're making videos that they're going out there to protest for human rights. And they're also getting getting beaten by the uh, morality police. They're uh, getting sent to prison. So there's just so much more than that. it's it's about everything. These people, like I said, have nothing. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and when you look at that, and some of the early numbers or some of the numbers that we're seeing out of Iran, uh, the state TV there saying that at least 41 protesters have been killed, uh, that more than 1,500 protesters or demonstrators have been arrested. What can people, again, protesting and rallying in Canada do as far as is it is it keeping these rallies going and reaching out to our federal government to do more? Or what actions can, can we do here and actually do you think make a difference? Uh, absolutely. We, we definitely can make a difference. I really feel like our voices and the way we've amplified it has kept the people going. When I talk to family or friends there, they are so thankful to see us doing what we're doing here. And it, it honestly is keeping their spirits alive. And sometimes even on this end, I'm like, you know, like we've been doing this, like I feel like I've I feel a bit hopeless and I'm like, if we cannot lose hope on this side, we have to keep it alive for them. So I think for action steps, the biggest thing is that we need to hold our governments accountable. We need to stop any sort of nuclear deals from going through with Iran. These governments need to stop making deals with a terrorist regime that is Iran, because on one hand, you cannot condemn them for killing and murdering their own people. And on the other hand, and then shake their hand and make deals with them. So I think that's the biggest thing is to reach out to our governments, you know, in the U.S., in Canada, and hold our uh, governments accountable, hold our leaders accountable. Number two, I think um, contacting uh, media, making sure, because I know a lot of the biggest ones are not talking about it nearly as much as they should, and I think um, just keep telling them, keep uh, tagging them, keep contacting them, and um, almost forcing them to do it, because we need everyone to keep this on their radar. Uh, Number three is to keep social media posts alive. It might seem tiring, it might seem redundant, but honestly, these people are dying on the streets and it's 
our duty to do that, at, at least do that for them. So I think just to keep posting, keep talking about it, keep discussing all these new videos that are coming out daily, like what happened to the university um, in Tehran. I'm sure you've heard of it, um, mm-hmm. Sharif University, where they're holding the children hostage and shooting at them and killing them. These are the smartest minds in Iran. Keep the information current. Keep posting. And lastly, I think um, any sort of petition, like uh, I've seen a lot that I've signed, um, again, bringing awareness to it. So I think those are four action steps that we can all take um, quite easily, quite safely, um, without any sort of fear on our end. And do you think it's changed, too, in that they're really... The, the response, as as we know, is different. The the number of rallies around the world and people that are standing up to this, uh, even though, as you mentioned, we know this isn't new. Does it make it as well so people can't say, oh, well, I didn't know. I didn't realize things were that bad when it's in our faces and people are keeping up those messages every day? Yeah, it, it, it exactly. It feels very different. I think collectively people are talking about it. Collectively people are aware and I've had a lot of people reach out and be like, I had no idea it was like this in Iran, because I think for people, they might think like they see the hijab and they think that's the extent of it. They don't know, for example, that, you know, you can't have a dog in Iran. Freedom of speech. If you post something on social media, the government, the morality police will show up at your door. You'll disappear and there's no accountability. There is nothing there. So I think they're all shocked as to like, wow, we didn't know it was that bad. And to be honest, I've even learned so much just, you know, diving in and researching and reading. So I think collectively we're all learning and um, all coming together. And yes, it is, it, it's hard to avoid it. And sometimes it can seem overwhelming, even for me, who's Iranian, but it's necessary. It's what is needed for us to keep pushing forward because this is not going to be easy, but it's doable. I really believe this time is completely different than all the other times because the world is coming together and we're united in the fight. All right. Mahan, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time as well. Well, as we all hopefully know, there is a municipal election taking place a little later on this month. We've certainly been talking about it on this radio station. You've been hearing from some of the candidates for council as well as for mayor. But we also know that voter turnout is always quite low when it comes to the civic elections. So how do we change that and get more people involved, engaged and actually casting a ballot? Well, Stuart Prest is a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University and joins us to talk more about this now. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you as well. Do we know why historically it's always such a low voter turnout when it comes to civic elections? Well, I think uh, part of it is the attention that gets paid to the different levels of government. When we when we talk about politics, we tend to focus on, on the federal or provincial level. That's where the, the conversation goes. It's where the issues are, are most familiar to people. When we when we uh, just looking at how uh, politics is taught in schools, we talk about uh, parliamentary government and, and so on. So it's not necessarily top of mind. And and that becomes sort of self-reinforcing, which is which is ironic in some ways, because when you think about how do politics actually affect people in their everyday lives, 
the stuff that uh, municipal governments are in charge of matters more than just about anything else, when, whether it's how do you get to work or the, the availability of clean water. Those really fundamental things that we only think about when they go wrong are the responsibility of municipal governments. Right, and that's kind of always been that disconnect, hasn't it? That it's the level that we're closest to, we have probably have the most access to, and like you say, has the biggest impact on our lives, yet it's got the lowest amount of voter turnout. Yeah, yeah, it is a, a, a bit of an irony, and yet it is something that we see not just in, in B.C., but across Canada and beyond. How do you think we start to change that? Is it the system itself that it doesn't lend itself to engagement with voters? Yeah, I think some of this could be changed through different uh, institutions. So uh, part of the problem when we look at uh, a system like Vancouver's at-large voting system, we can see that information is a bit of a barrier. If anyone has taken the time to try to figure out uh, what their ballot is going to be, you're looking at trying to choose 10 different candidates from maybe uh, 10 different uh, parties out of 60 candidates, and half these parties didn't exist in the last election. That's a a huge uh, barrier to to making an informed choice. So you can imagine that people might just be turned off just by the, the, the daunting nature of the task to try to get up to speed. And so they say, well, I'm just not going to bother. And so if we were to, to redesign our, our institutions, we might be able to simplify that process of voting a little bit. And how do you think that would, would work or how would we do that? Because you're right. And I voted in the advance poll in Vancouver on Saturday and the ballot is long. It is a very long piece of paper. Luckily, at the bottom, there's a reminder saying, turn it over. You're not done yet. There's more to vote on the other side. But it's it's true. If you weren't following along, if you if you weren't paying attention, the, you wouldn't know half the candidates or what they stood for or, or what or where, how to maybe cast your ballot. So how do we change that? Uh, it, it's true. The struggle really is, is real with, with that, that ballot. And I think there are some different solutions. There's no sort of silver bullet, but we can we can think about some different alternatives. We could, say, uh, move towards a ward-based system. Then our, our municipal elections would look a little bit more like our provincial and, and federal elections, where you're just electing one councillor, uh, so, uh, and, and you are maybe presented with four or five different parties as, as a choice uh, to choose between. And, and so that that would simplify the process of voting. But but there would be a cost there as well, where currently we elect councillors who uh, are making promises and thinking about the city as a whole. They're in an award-based system. You'd be rewarded for, for really working for your own neighbourhood and not necessarily taking that larger vision and making promises or thinking about the, the implications for the entire city as a whole. So that would be uh, in some ways, an, an easier voting system, but it wouldn't be better in every sense. You could also go to something that is more proportional. You can apply that kind of proportional representation logic that we've talked about at the federal level and provincial uh, level. You could do a version of that at the municipal level as well. And then you may not have someone representing your, your neighborhood, but just about everyone in the in the city could, could look at council and say, there's somebody on council that more or less represents my ideas about how the city should be, should be governed. So that might encourage people to become a little bit more involved as well.
Don't we kind of do that now, though, in that not having the ward system, so you don't have somebody from the, your particular part of the city that would be your representative, but don't we kind of do the, the that system in that you you can pick whoever you want. You don't have to pick for a slate of candidates with the same party. You can choose whoever you want and hope that maybe there's a difference of opinion on council. Yeah, we definitely uh, do that to an extent. You're not uh, constrained to, to just one candidate, but there is a, a bit of a risk the way in which uh, the this at-large system works, where uh, I describe it as a, a, a push, pushing parties towards a, a mobilization challenge, where uh, the goal is not really to make an argument to try to convince a broad cross-section of the city to to vote for for you, but rather just to find ways to mobilize some some core set of voters who uh, are, are you can count on coming out to vote. So you're really focusing on those who are most likely to vote tends to be older voters, more well-off voters. And you're really trying just to find those issues that are going to mobilize that group and get them to uh, the polling station and maybe to press the vote for your for your opponents. And and that leads to these very narrow kinds of campaign promises that we're seeing and some some very sharp attacks that are not necessarily really grounded in in, in facts among the, the different candidates. And so if you have one party that just say they get to 35 percent of the vote, that might be enough. To, to run the table and, and win a majority at council, even though you know, two-thirds of the city d- doesn't really agree with them at all. So it's not necessarily going to represent the, the true diversity of views within the city. Right. Um, we know as well, and that's part of the reason it was the argument behind the randomized ballot rather than the alphabetical one, that the higher up you are on the list, the better chance you have of being elected. Does that also show that people... It's great. Maybe you've made the time and you've come out to vote, but you're just clicking off the boxes at the top of the list. So does that really help uh, as well? Oh, and that's a that's a real problem as well. And the randomized ballot can can help with that a little bit, but it just means that it's a a random advantage given to some candidates and not others. And I think that really gets back to that core you know, educational challenge, right? Just how do you get uh, voters to a position where they feel like they have the information necessary to make an informed choice and to feel like the the choice they're being act, uh, asked to make is is a sort of a, a manageable one. The task is not too complex. There's not doesn't require hours upon hours of research to to get to a point where they feel comfortable choosing among those those candidates. And so trying to find more ways to get information out to, to voters in a timely way, that's a, that's a real challenge. Trying to help people see why is this important? Why is it worth spending a bit of time getting to know who the different candidates are? And then trying to design the institutions perhaps in a way that is going to make that choice a little bit more manageable. I think we can do all of these things and try to make our, our municipal elections work a little bit better and, and end up with a result that is a, a true representation of what the, the city's inhabitants are, are actually asking for. And what about the number of candidates as far as how do you balance democracy and encouraging people to run and be involved in civic uh, civic politics? How do you balance that with a long list of candidates who have met some pretty low requirements to put their names on the ballot. Oh yeah, it, it's it's a good question, and in some ways, this is this is a good problem to have, right? You want to have a population that's really engaged in politics, where you see a lot of people, uh, not just just following the news passively, but actually trying to to get involved and make make a difference. So, so in a sense, that speaks to a really vibrant civic culture. We have other municipalities in in BC where that's not really the case, where a lot of races are being decided by acclamation. There's just one candidate for mayor, and and no real choice available. So. 
So we want to encourage people to to get involved. But in in a big city like Vancouver or say Surrey in particular, you probably want to have uh, a little bit higher of a threshold to to uh, actually participate in elections. So you you only need say twenty five signatures. That's something just about anyone can do even on on a whim and it may not uh, produce a, a, a set of candidates that are, are truly equally serious about the, the entire project so perhaps having uh, a little higher requirement for the number of, of signatures perhaps they should come from different parts of the city so it's not just say somebody deciding and asking 25 people in 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 a, a particular uh, office or something like that you actually have to get out into the community and and make different connections to show that you're you're really serious about uh, democracy and getting involved uh, those sorts of things might help constrain the list of candidates as well uh, does it make sense or do you think is there any issue with having it on a saturday it, uh, I think there are some good reasons to try to do it on, on a weekend. We we often at the, the federal provincial level think of it as, as being part of our work day. You have to find time to get off work to go out and, and make a choice. But there there is no reason it has to be like that. And so putting something uh, like a vote on a, on a, a weekend can be a way to make it a little bit easier for uh, more people to, to vote. If you don't have to take time off work, then that can be a little nudge in the way of, of uh, encouraging people to, to actually take the time to go fill out a ballot. And so uh, having the, the vote on a weekend, perhaps spreading it over two days, having a, a more advanced polling, different ways for people to cast ballots, whether it's by mail or telephone, what have you, these are always that we can again try to make it easier for people to vote and to try to to reach those populations that maybe on the bubble where they, they are trying to pay attention but they feel like there there's uh, it's a bit of a daunting prospect to to actually spend the time and, and put in the effort to vote the easier you can make it the uh, the more people might just get over the hump and actually cast a cast a vote all right well we'll see what the turnout is like this year with the election less than a couple of weeks away Stuart, always great to have you on the show thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Well, it's not the nicest thing to talk about, and that's probably why a lot of people put it off. But a will is a very important document, even though many British Columbians don't have one or haven't taken the time to put together a legal will. Well, joining us to talk a little bit more about this and some ways that it's been made even easier to do this in BC is Aaron Barry, CEO of Willful Canada. This is a do-it-yourself online legal will-creating platform. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Look forward to our discussion. What are the numbers like then as far as British Columbians that maybe haven't taken out or taken the time to make a will? What, what are we looking at as far as those numbers? Yeah, so about 54% of British Columbians do not have a will. And of those who do, about 1 in 10 are out of date because the person has gone through a life change. Uh, And we know that the younger you are, the less likely you are to have a will. So a full 82% of British Columbians under 35 have not created this important document. Which I'm guessing people won't be all that surprised by that number because, like you said, when you're in that age group or if you're 35 and under, you're probably not thinking all that much about it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this common misconception that you don't need a will if you're young or if you don't have a lot of assets. But a will is such an important legal document that gives you a voice after you're gone. It appoints someone to wrap up your affairs. It appoints guardians for minor children or pets. 
Uh, and of course, it says who should get your stuff. And if you don't have a will, there's a government formula in BC that will distribute your assets, maybe to some family members that you wouldn't want to get them. And how does that work as well? Then you kind of answered this. But so if you don't have a will, and unfortunately, if, if you pass away unexpectedly, what happens to any assets or any debt that you might have? Yeah, so unfortunately, debt does not disappear when you pass away, although I'm sure we all wish it would. Uh, The courts would appoint someone to act as your executor instead of you choosing that person. And as I mentioned, there's a government formula that spreads out your assets to family members based on uh, that that formula. So, you know, starting with spouses, children, parents, and down on the line. Uh, and also, if you have children who are minors, the courts are going to have to appoint a guardian for them. So if you have that pesky brother-in-law that you wouldn't want to do that, having a will means you are in the driver's seat for that decision. Does it break down? I don't know if you have these numbers, though, but does it break down? Do, do people with children, with dependents, do they generally, or are they more likely to have a will than those without? Surprisingly not. I mean, I'm the parent of a a one-year-old daughter who is very cute. And, uh, you know, I was surprised when I looked into it and found that actually parents are less likely to have a will than the rest of the population, even though there's a group that really should have one most. So, you know, Make-A-Will Week is proclaimed by the BC government, and it's a call to action for everyone out there who doesn't have a will to, to get one in place. And you can do that easily online, so it's not as cumbersome as some people listening might be thinking. Right, because that might be one of the things that maybe deters people from doing this in that it could be costly. You have to sit down with either a lawyer or a notary public and and do the paperwork. But it sounds like there are some easier, I suppose, or more streamlined ways of doing that. Yeah, I mean, my husband and I started Willful a few years ago. When we set out to create our wills, we loved doing things online, and we didn't really find an easy option. We didn't want to pay, you know, thousands of dollars in a lawyer's office to get our documents done because we had a pretty simple situation. And so we set out to build something that we would want to use that was affordable and easy and allowed you to do it from home in about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, And BC actually became the first province to allow fully digital wills uh, as of December 2021. So you can now not only create those documents online, but sign them, have them witnessed, and store them all completely online. So you don't have to then get them notarized or do anything other than what you're doing online? No, so you can visit a lawyer or notary in BC to get your will done. And if that's your preference, more power to you. We just care that you get a will, but you can also use a platform like Willful. Think of it like TurboTax. We guide you through a series of questions, help you appoint those roles in your will. And then we also have a pilot program with DocuSign where we'll provide the witnesses and help you digitally sign the document for free. And you mentioned too uh, off the top that there are a lot of people who have wills. Maybe you did take the time to make a will at some point, but it's out of date. Is it easier then if you do an online will and then you do have one of those major life changes? Is it easier then to update them? Yeah, great question. I mean, we all have that habit of putting those documents in a desk drawer and letting them gather dust. I know my mom is due for a will update and it's been sitting in her filing cabinet for 30 years. Typically, you'd have to make appointments and pay you know, hundreds of dollars to make an update. With platforms like Willful, we actually offer free uh, updates in future. So you just have to log in, make those changes, and then just re-execute the will by signing it and witnessing it, uh, which, again, is easier in BC because you can do that online versus the rest of Canada where they have to print out actual pieces of paper.
All right. Uh, what about, uh, this might be something that happens more in TV shows and in the movies, but what about contesting wills from family members that maybe aren't pleased with the way things are being uh, divvied up? But how, how Does that happen very often? Absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time. And a big reason is that people don't necessarily talk about estate planning at the dinner table. And so a lot of times they're shocked when someone passes away and they find out that they did or didn't have a will, that they have lots of debt that the person didn't know about. So the biggest tip is to have the conversations. You know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. I know it's maybe not the most popular topic at the dinner table, but you can start the conversation by saying, hey, mom, dad, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, open up that conversation especially if you're the one who would be dealing with their estate. Uh, But realistically, if someone did contest something in your will, they have to bring forward proof that that was what you actually intended. So unless they can provide that, uh, your will is the best intention that you can show. And how often should someone then, is it when you have those major life events or after you've put your will together, I guess, unless you change your mind or maybe you have a falling out with the person that you've named in there as, as, as getting something, how often do you, do you think, do you have to look at it or update it? Well, it would be great if people would look at it once a year, right? You file your taxes every spring, get that will out and take a glance through it and maybe even put together a few other pieces of information like your social media passwords or any other details that would be helpful for your family if you were to pass away. Realistically, you're going to want to update your will after you, let's say, have a child like I did. If you get a pet you want to include in the will, if you move provinces, if you get divorced, you got to get that X out of the will. Uh, And to your point, if anyone named in the will either passes away or you just don't want them in that role anymore. And do you find a lot of people too, is it finding out or making those decisions about maybe you're going to, maybe you, you do have assets and you want to leave them to a certain charity or a certain group? Is it making sure all of that is kind of written out and in plain form as well? Yeah, all of that would be contained within the will. So really, when you pass away, any assets you have at the time would flow as per your choices in the will. And to your point, it's it's an excellent idea uh, if you want to leave things to charity. I mean, it it leaves such a positive legacy and you get a tax receipt or your estate gets a tax receipt, uh, which helps reduce the taxes on your estate and increase the money that goes to your beneficiary. So you can leave things to individuals or to organizations. and, uh, And we've seen lots of big seven-figure charitable gifts that make a huge difference. All right. Well, it is uh, timely given that, uh, as you said, this is Make a a Will Week, just trying to raise more awareness and uh, make sure people are perhaps thinking about this. Erin, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate you having me to talk about Willful.